I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Raised in one of the most notorious sex cults, one woman's memoir brings their atrocities out of the shadows and into the light. This is part two of the Daniela Mistanik Young story. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us today for part two of Daniela Mistanik Young's story. Now, if you have not listened to part one yet, we urge you to do so because it provides a lot of context around this continued conversation. So if you haven't listened, go ahead and check out our episode from last week. For those of you who have listened, we hope you enjoy part two with Daniela. So in the summer of 2009, she started basic training. And while she admits this was good for her because she liked the discipline and she was strong and she was good at it, she quickly began wondering if maybe she had made the wrong decision and perhaps this was not the best fit for her. In Uncultured, it starts off with the prologue. I'm in basic training and I'm having this realization, oh, I've just joined another cult. And this wasn't necessarily like a bad or a scary thing to me at the time, because I'm like, I chose this, right? This is a good organization. And most significantly, I know how to do this. You know, I have the leg up on everyone else here because I grew up in a setting like this, essentially. And I noticed right away in basic training that like, this is what they are doing. They are breaking us down. They are building us up. You know, 
military modern day army basic training was created by four psychologists who studied abusive relationships. And it is literally patterned on that. So, you know, these days they don't, for example, physically assault you anymore. They just make you do it to yourself. So they just make you do push-ups until you collapse. And then they yell at you and then they give you the small acts of kindness and all of the steps that it takes. So I was definitely able to see that. But to me, it was just, this is fine. This is a good experience. This is what I signed up for. I like to say you knew what you signed up for is one of the largest thought-stopping cliches because it's never true. But You know, in basic training, I definitely start having triggers and flashbacks to my childhood. Um, When I really realized it was as soon as I got to Afghanistan. And, you know, at this point, I'm almost two years in the army. And of course, it has been day one, women in the military, you're a bitch, a slut, you're a dyke. Preparing to go to Afghanistan, I have my boss give me a article on how many women get raped overseas while they're deployed. And then I'm there in Afghanistan. And like, I remember just Americans that had never been anywhere just looking around horrified because even on the base, like you look like you are in, for me, it was the favelas of Brazil, right? Like you just look like it's just a place you've never imagined before. And I was like, well, Here I am back behind these big walls that I cannot leave at will with a huge threat of sexual violence. You know, women are 5% of the population. There's 30,000 people on Kandahar Airfield. There are, I mean, the entire base is dark corners. There were some specific dark corners that were called Rape Alley which was, I might add, the only way to get from your housing to food. So it was bad. Um, And that was when, for the first time, I think I really started to feel like a sexual abuse victim and have those sort of those traumas, right? I think I had suppressed so much of that. And now all of a sudden, I'm 23 years old and I'm not going to sleep because if I go to sleep, I'm going to be back in the basement with the pedophile. And so then I was just at war not sleeping, which is never fun. And that whole deployment became a very, very good example, I think, of trauma. Wow. That was such a a powerful, revealing statement that she just made. And I, I can't imagine how traumatic and how scared she really must have been to be in that situation. I, I want to also point out, wasn't she like first female boots on the ground in Afghanistan? I think I remember her saying she was, you know, one of the first females to be in combat, which in itself, I think she broke some barriers here, but I could see why certainly being in combat and then reliving this trauma must have been doubly hard for her. She's a strong woman. I find it so interesting that it at first it seemed that her experience in the cult would make her a good recruit because of her ability to be disciplined and she's strong and she can get things done. But it's also clear that it brings up a lot of, it brought up a lot of trauma for her. And now she's having, she's experiencing PTSD. She's being threatened with sexual violence yet again, and she's isolated. So this, I couldn't imagine how hard. And 
I do want to, I do urge people to read the book because in the book, she describes in very great detail what she would call as culture shock and mental programming that went on during her time when she was in basic training. And then even when she went off to officer candidate school, that's where she trained in military intelligence. And eventually she would rise to the ranks of lieutenant. But she does a great job of paralleling the experiences she has with her experiences in the cult. Amy, I have another question as well. I know that Daniela discussed the threat of sexual violence that was around her. Did she discuss in her book, was she a victim of sexual assault in the when she was in the service? Yeah, she absolutely was. Um, she endured several instances of sexual assault, but she would never report the crimes because part of it is due to the army culture at the time, and she was terrified of being blamed. And Megan, it wasn't just the acute threat of sexual assault that women faced in the military. There was also the daily discrimination. Having women in combat was still experimental. It was early. We're talking about 2011, and then she was back in 2014 when she served in Afghanistan. So she was really making waves, and she was a pioneer. The U.S. military debated for approximately 243 years, like, are women good enough to be men? Presupposing that only men can fight, right? And it's like, so then we get out there and we realize, oh, well, when both men and women are trying to kill you, it makes a lot of sense to have both men and women trying to keep you alive. I do suspect that experiment was designed to fail and was designed to sort of, there's political pressure to put women in combat. So we're going to do it. We're going to lose a few. Americans won't have tolerance for this. And it will be proven that they can't hack it. And of course, we you know, showed the opposite. And there was drastic change in, in a decade, in the last decade of the war. You know, that moment, right? So I, we're going to a village. I'm the only woman on the team. And I always contrast it that like the men saw that the sand looked funny, which I would never have noticed in a million years. And I noticed that there were no women and children. And the reason that I noticed it, we get briefed on this all the time. Nobody ever steps outside the wire without being reminded, hey, if you don't see women and children, that is a danger sign. And I'm sure they were going to get there at some point, maybe after we tripped the IED, right? But subconsciously, I looked forward to seeing the children, the women and children, because I'm 5% of the population on base as a woman, and you don't see children for a whole year if you don't leave the wire. And so they would see me, they would recognize that I was a girl, which adults couldn't do, but the children could do, and their eyes would light up. So it was this thing, like, I didn't even recognize why I was feeling the spidey sense until I did. But, you know, I think when we talk about, like, diversity and inclusion and perspective, it's really about, like, there is no way to do it without having a seat at the table. Because if even if you had asked me, okay, tell us from your feminine perspective what we need to know. This was subconscious, right? This was the the sixth sense or whatever they like to call it. You know, like we have to be there. We have to be in the room and be empowered to speak up. Sorry, this is my soapbox. So I'll stop. I rather appreciated her soapbox. I did too. And it's so interesting about the children knowing that she was female. Because remember, when you're in combat gear, it's very hard to tell you know, who you're looking at. And it's so amazing that there's somehow this connection that children were able to tell that she was a female. Yep. And I think she brings up such an important point and it highlights 
the fact that women and men just have different experiences and they bring, they have a different intuition. Mm-hmm. And I think the point she brings up, the more diverse voices you have, the better, because everyone comes from a different lived experience and the more people around the table or the more people on the battlefield, the better off you're going to be. For me, it was actually interesting hearing Daniela talk about, uh, we just presuppose that women couldn't fight, but of course women can fight as well. I used to see the roles of females and males as a bit different in terms of law enforcement. Uh, as it pertained to myself as well, I saw that I was better at certain functions and I still think I was than my male counterparts and perhaps they were better at certain things than I was. But I always thought together we made a better team. But I think Daniela only highlights that and highlights that we can also do a lot of the same things that it just was never assumed we could. And I think this is why diversity in general is very important. Not only were things difficult for Daniela because of the discrimination she was facing and the sexual violence, she was also going through a contentious divorce. In addition, her separation with Jeff, she also had a medical scare. So there was a lot going on for Daniela at this time. And it came to the point where she decided it was best for her to just leave the army. It wasn't serving her the way that she had expected it to. And it was, quite frankly, a dangerous place for her. Mm-hmm. Daniela decided to pursue graduate study in industrial and organizational psychology. She was also recognized for the work that she did while she was serving the Army. And in 2014, she received the very high honor of the President's Volunteer Service Award. After she came home from Afghanistan, Daniela had a story to tell. You know, not only did she have this upbringing in the Children of God cult, she also had this experience and she started drawing the parallels between the two. And so just last year, Daniela's memoir, Uncultured, was published. When we were talking to Daniela, she talked a lot about how she took her power back. And I thought that was a really interesting theme that kept emerging. So we asked Daniela to talk a little bit more about how she feels that the experience of publishing this book helped her get her power back. The cover of Uncultured, everyone says, is very arresting. And it's, you know, this destroyed photo of a very young child. It looks about a six-year-old. It's actually a two-year-old. It's just, you know, stretched a little bit because it's ripped. And that's me at two years old in the family's largest compound in Japan, where they were basically, we all just lived to be these actor and actresses. And, you know, to me, that picture was always the one picture that was, okay, this is a cult, right? This is me being trafficked and nobody can really say otherwise. So it was a very uncomfortable picture for me. And my one requirement when I started this book was do not put my face on the cover. I am not writing that kind of cult book. And... The book is very emotional and the you know team around me felt that that photo needed to be used in some way. And so that kind of started this very deliberate journey for me of, you know, felt very exploitative. Of course, anytime you write your your stories of trauma, you get accused of sensationalizing or just wanting to make money, especially from people very close to you or in your community. And I was dealing with this both on the cult side and the army side where, you know, when you leave the army, you are allowed to choose one of two narratives. You are allowed to choose to be proud of your service or you are allowed to choose to be disgruntled, but not both. And I 
you know, I referred to earlier, they would tell us in the army, you're either a bitch, a slut, or a dyke. And this is at a time when being gay is will end your career. So this is very much a threat. And I like to say nowadays, like, no thanks, I choose all three. Like, you don't get to tell me who I am. You don't get to tell me what stories I get to tell. So I'm going to tell proud stories of being the only woman out on the sand and the way I help save people's lives and desegregated the military by gender. And I'm also going to show you me getting pulled aside by my boss and being told to watch my back against 25 American soldiers because I also want to talk about rape culture. And wanting to talk about rape culture has nothing to do with me being proud of my service. And so, you know, especially as I was wrestling with this with the military, and this is right as, right, Kandahar and Kabul are falling to the Taliban just for sense of timeline, right? So as veterans, we're all struggling with what did we do? And I was also going through this now on the cult side with the photo. And eventually I just had this moment where I was like, yes, they were exploiting me. That is a photo of child trafficking, but I can, I own it. I own that photo. I will put it on a cover and I will go make a bunch of money with my book. And so, you know, I also have describing punishments when they would put us on silence restriction, you would have to wear a sign on your chest so that everyone in the commune knew sort of to ignore you and exclude you. And one of the signs would be, don't talk to me, I'm disrespectful. So I put that in a book, copyrighted that book. I now own that phrase. I put it on a t-shirt with a really sassy logo of a, a woman's profile with big earrings. And, you know, that is my revenge on the aunties. And when I saw the final cover of the book that we selected, I had already made this journey in my mind. And then the option they came up with where it was a destroyed photo. So technically my face is not on the cover. Um, it felt very empowering. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Megan, you've seen the cover of the book, right? I have. And I think it's so perfectly fitting and the way she explained it and taking this photo back and making it hers. I also think it was great to hear her explain how you do not have to feel one way or the other about serving your country. You can, in fact, have experienced both positive and negative. It's not a dichotomy. It's not an either mm -hmm. or. It's this is what happened. This is the full story. So I think that was yep. wonderful to hear. Yeah, I think it's a good lesson to remind people that things, they're not just black or white. There's something in the middle and you don't have to be one or the other. She could, like she said, she could be both proud, but also denounce some of the practices. I don't know why, but it just made me think of the way we discuss the justice system in terms of we could think someone is guilty, but yet justice wasn't served mm -hmm. or, you know, justice wasn't carried out the right way. There's more nuance to it. I mentioned in the intro that we would discuss the parallels between the cult and Daniela's experience in the army. So I just wanted to talk about that for a minute. Generally speaking, there's actually a lot of similarities between the two organizations that was never that were never really clear to me. But once you start looking into it, you realize how many parallels there actually are. 
So for one, I think this is an obvious one. There's an authoritarian structure. Along with having an authoritarian structure, there are many techniques of persuasion and control. Daniela talked about her experiences in the army and how they use mind control techniques. And then she also talked about how they use that as form of punishment when she was in the cult. Yes, I thought that was so interesting. And I really started to see it afterwards. Go ahead. Yeah, and then there's also the isolation from family and friends. We saw that very clearly when Daniela explained, especially being kept away from her parents. But she also, in her book, she talks about her experience when she was away, both at training camp and then also when she was serving and how she felt very alone because she did not speak to many people outside of the organization It's also these ideas of purity, and along with the ideas of purity comes the tendency for a person to feel guilt and shame. This could be because they're explicitly told that what they're doing is shameful. Um, We can see this in the Army when she talks about blaming the victims, and that's why she didn't feel comfortable coming forward with her experiences of being victimized, because she felt shameful, because she felt that they would blame her in some way, Mm -hmm. because of perhaps of a way she was acting. Right. And that was also very clear in the cult. There's also dependency on the group. And along with dependency on the group becomes fear of leaving that group. So these powerful group pressures are very clear when Daniela spoke about the children of God and why everyone seems to just go along with things, even when they did not seem right to people, or maybe even just turning a blind eye to it. And then in the army, there was also clear indication of the pressures that she felt from those around her, especially the way she felt being a woman in the army. You could also see the excessive devotion and dedication to the cause, and you see that both in the cult and also in the army. And then lastly, the othering of the enemy. Now, in the children of God, the enemy was anyone who was not in the group. In the army, of course, the enemy would be whoever the enemy is at any given time. Very interesting parallels and and very true. In Daniela's book, she gives more examples of some of these parallels. And again, these are parallels that never occurred to me until I read her book. And while Daniela's memoir uncovers the dark corners of cults, both in religious organizations and federal ones, there's still the sense of justice and closure that just feels elusive. So next month, I will have been out of the cult for 20 years. And I will also have my master's degree from Harvard conferred. And so I've been thinking about that a lot. You know, I think the story of uncultured in many ways is me believing that I can outrun the trauma. And physically running is actually a huge theme. But but really thinking, like, if I'm quiet enough, if I blend in enough, and if I'm successful enough, like one day I'll be okay, one day I'll be happy. And, you know, when captain in the army isn't enough, it gives you that myth of success. You know, and I kind of describe a bunch of us as we did it all right. You know, we were not the, there's a group that got out and partied and stripped and did the desperate thing people do to get their lives together. And then there's the ones of us that in quotes, did it all right. Um, And all of us are still sort of falling apart in our 30s and 40s. So I think, you know, really that journey of healing for me mostly happened after the book ends. You know, you get a little glimpse of it in the epilogue. But I think part of one of the best things I've heard is that 
you're healed when you stop wishing you could get a do-over. Um, so, you know, um, I have a very, very lovely life and it's quite free of trauma, but, you know, you never know when, like, your daughter having a seventh birthday party will make you break down. And I think just accepting, you know, that this is what I live with. And, you know, that was really why I wrote the book, lost many friends and family in writing the book. And for me, it was, you know, I want this to have meaning. I didn't get a choice about surviving any of this, but if I can make it meaningful, that will do something. And honestly, at least 10 or 12 people have had their therapists read it. So that for me is, you know, that that means something. Where she talks about little things triggering her, such as her seven-year-old's birthday, I think we see that often with victims where sometimes you don't even know. It's almost on this unconscious level that something sparks a reaction or an emotion. I think with all that she's been through, the fact that she can move forward, she can tell her truth, she's doing so much for other victims. And as she mentions, it's at the expense of some of her relationships, but she knew she had a story to tell and she, regardless of what people thought, she was going to tell that story. Yeah, I think that's great. I bet it was therapeutic for her as well along the way. Yeah, she talked about how she did the audiobook. She read it herself. And she said that was much harder than she had expected it to be. Oh. Like just reading the words, she said, was extremely emotional and unexpected. I'll bet. Do we know anything about the cult now? I don't hear much about them anymore. So they're no longer the children of God. They went from the children of God to the family of love to the family. And then in 2004 until present day, the group is now known as the Family International they don't have as much of a presence as they once had, and they consider themselves spirit helpers. And their most recent teachings are mostly based on beliefs, which they term the, quote, new spiritual weapons. What they believe is that they are soldiers in the spiritual war of good versus evil for the souls and hearts of men. You know, while Daniela is no longer a part of the cult, it's likely that she still has some family members and friends that are a part of the cult. She's very close with her mother, it's unclear how active her mother is in the teachings of the Family International and what her relationship is. But it's nice to see that Daniela does not fault her mother. And she's rightfully so acknowledges that her mother was a victim in all of this. And I think it's great that they have a relationship. And she did mention that her mother has apologized for her role in the trauma Daniela had experienced. That's nice that her mother apologized, even though I don't think it was really her fault. But has anyone else apologized for what they did to her? She says not really, no. My mother, who is also, in my opinion, not at all at fault for any of this, has definitely said that she's sorry. Actually, this is, I think, one of the hardest things for our community is that even though mostly the cult has fa fallen apart and supposedly all of the adults that joined have realized, um, they do not want to help us with our struggles to get our lives together by admitting what it was. And of course, if it's hard for those of us that grew up in it to realize what it was, it's probably twice as hard. I did send a, when I was writing my book, I sent them a stop and decease letter to stop using my 
likeness and that they never had my permission and they never will. And, you know, at some point I will likely pursue that. But they sent me back saying, sorry, we had all legal signatures at the time, which cannot possibly be true because even my mother wasn't of legal age. And you also can't sign away your children for exploitation. But, and they gave me their very rote, you know, Mama Maria, who Karen Zerby is currently leading the cult, you know, published a open letter saying she was sorry if policies ever accidentally hurt anyone. And that is supposed to be enough for us. And only when we confront them do we receive that. It's about the worst apology I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, I'm not sure that qualifies as an apology. Agreed. Before we get started on our discussion, I just want to encourage everyone to pick up Uncultured and give it a read and tell people about it. This book really affected me. I love reading memoirs, so I was not surprised that I picked it up, but I was surprised at how quick I read it and how invested I became in the story. I told so many people about it, such as you, Megan, and you are now using it for your book club. Correct. But after I read it, I was just so in awe of Daniela and her strength that I was kind of nervous to contact her. And then I said, you know what? I have nothing to lose. I definitely did not expect to hear back. So I was so excited. I had a few conversations with Daniela and as did you. And it was such a pleasure to talk to her. And I hope we could talk to her. I guess we'll talk to her again at your book club. I really think people who join for the book clubs will appreciate hearing directly from her as well. Let's just talk about cults in general, because many people wrongfully believe that cults are illegal. But in the United States, in fact, cults are protected by the First Amendment, which says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So there are many definitions of what a cult actually is. And what a cult is to one person might not be the same as it is to somebody else. Mm -hmm. But I think we can all agree that the children of God fits our popular definition of a cult with institutional abuse. I think so. It's a good point that you point out as well. There's nothing inherently criminal about joining a cult or being a part of a cult, being a member of one. It's the activities that occur, the crimes that occur under the umbrella of the commune that are problematic. So how can we explain how the children of God became what it became? Because it did just start out as a religious group, and at some point it became very criminal in its practices. And it's interesting when you, and Daniela talks about this idea of groupthink and how, you know, groups, even if you think something that's going on in a group is not necessarily above brow, you'll just go along with it because everyone else is going along with it. And I think you see that a lot in these situations. I think it starts out, you can probably look at it as a function of strain theory, right? It starts out of certain people are are not able to conform really to mainstream America, or maybe they don't want to. And because of that, they respond in ways that Robert Merton, who developed strain theory, one of his ways that he explained the responses was that of rebellion. So rebellion is a form of response to strain when people substitute their own value system in. So you might say that's what happens with cults. People join together who are facing like they're on the outskirts of mainstream America, just not finding success there, not finding happiness. And so they substitute a new value system in. And I think that's really how you explain how cults form 
and kind of cultural theory. It's a different culture. They develop a culture with different values, different goals. Part of it is explaining why that happens. But then there's the other part, like you said, that you're trying to explain how it gets from maybe well-intended to criminal. And it might be more than groupthink. It might be that some of the originators or people, the founders, developed this with the idea that they were going to perpetrate these crimes, Mm -hmm. but they were going to try to legitimize them. Recall that Berg did have a history of inappropriate sexual relationships with children. So, yes, there's a very strong chance that Berg did start this thinking that he'd be able to continue with his criminal behaviors under the guise of a religious group. Yeah, can organize it and make it legitimate. But do most mm-hmm. of the people, who, you know, who joined had a different idea, probably. Yep. That's how I see it as you explain how this happens. And then, of course, Berg would have recruited people who would both serve the purpose. And then he would also recruit people who had were like minded with him. And I bet he could spot those people out so that he could institutionalize the practices. We were curious about why cults are so hard to stop, especially when it's become so clear that cults like Children of God perpetuated so much harm against its members, you would think that's all it would take is one person exposing it. But cults continue, and a lot of cults still operate in a similar way that is harmful to its members. Mm-hmm. You know, so we asked Daniela, why does she think it's so difficult to eradicate cults? I think something people don't realize about the Children of God, like it was 10,000 members around the world. It was highly organized, highly efficient. They, they sang at the White House twice. Like They had connections. They had power. And, you know, maybe one other thing maybe is sort of America's obsession with cults, too. You know, I think about how the Duggars was a TV show. I mean, I just watched that horrified. And now, of course, you have a Duggar coming out with a big book saying it was a cult. And, you know, there's something there, I think, that maybe prevents the justice mixed with all of the other things that you mentioned, of course. And, you know, also the fact that children in America don't really have rights and America has never signed on to an international rights agreement for children. So that makes it very, very difficult because children are whatever their parents want them to be. I don't think we'll ever have justice. You know, one of my questions for you which I don't expect an answer, but it's just, you know, as criminologists, why is it so hard to pursue cults or to help the children? You know, we were raided in four different countries, tried to act against children of God, and in every case, the children went back to the group that is famous for pedophilia for God. So, you know, they played it very smart. They left the U.S. They changed their names. They spread all over. Um, For me, I think for a lot of us, because it would be so symbolic if our largest pedophile was not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that would be great. Um, But, you know, we know we're never getting sort of money or or seeing them in prison. Um, There have been two convictions. The UK got rid of statute of limitations for sex crimes against children. So there have been two convictions for that. But 
in most cases, we do not even know the legal names of our abusers. So that's another thing that makes it very, very difficult to try to pursue any form of justice. And, you know, I think for the last 20 years, I've wanted to understand more than I wanted to be angry. Um, but if you're interested, I recently got very angry and posted an open letter to all of them on my social medias. So, Megan, Daniela brought up people's obsession with cults. And this is an area we've talked about a lot in terms of people's obsession with true crime in general and what that's all about. But I do think that young people in particular seem to have a fascination with cults. I think it could be because of what we see in popular media, you know, Scientology, Nexium. Some people have even said Soul Cycle is a cult, QAnon. This term of cult has been thrown around quite a bit. I think so. It's used very differently. People are fascinated with deviant behavior. Let's put it that way. And they want to know why, what makes someone do that. And I've always said that it's okay to explore that respectfully, but it's not always done respectfully in terms of cults becoming popularized and cool to look at, as we discussed with Daniela as well, that there are some very powerful people in these cults and they're organized, really organized. And mm -hmm. so it prevents almost the infiltration of these cults. And then you always have to worry about these mass incidents where, you know, law enforcement do try to go in or someone tries to go in and then there's a mass suicide or murders, deaths kind of thing. So I think a lot of those reasons insulate cults. The Catholic faith has been plagued by pedophilia and rape allegations for years. And we've seen conservative Christian churches have many scandals. So does power equate to sexual predatory behavior? Or is it the level of sexual repression that tends to coincide with these religions that perhaps create the perfect storm. So you have the power and the sexual repression. And I know you've published a bit on this, Megan. Can you talk a little bit about this since you've written on the topic? Yeah, I haven't written much. It's not my primary area. However, what I can tell you is that, you know, this you're referring to the Catholic abuse scandal that was revealed by some great reporting by the Spotlight team, actually a movie Spotlight about this. And what they just found was that there were a number of bad actors. There were a number of priests who were committing these sexual acts, sexual assaults for many years and keeping it quiet. And what happens is it's certainly about power and protection of an institution. But you're right. It's the perfect storm as well because of the way in which they have to rip press any sexual desires or urges. And certainly that's how they express that is with children, victims, people who can't say anything, people vulnerable. who they know they can. Yeah. What's that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, vulnerable that populations. Goes back to vulnerable, yeah. And they're protected. Yeah, and so they're protected by, or they were protected for a long time by being moved around and keeping it hush. And that also reminds me of when I teach about healthcare killers. A lot of hospitals are these powerful organizations and a lot of healthcare killers were allowed to go on murdering people for so long because hospitals didn't want to acknowledge that. So they would move them around from hospital to hospital instead of acknowledging that the problem existed at all. It just brought that up for me. Yep. That's not everyone wants to be able to say that's their problem, not our problem. And they feel as if there's no blood on their hands, so to speak, if the predator is no longer in their particular institution. But they're just as culpable for keeping it quiet. And I think it's just clear that, you know, predators will leverage what they can 
We see this also in Hollywood. When people are in power, they leverage that power to victimize individuals. I mean, you brought up Rose McGowan, too, because it's kind of interesting what you're talking about connects. Rose McGowan was in this cult, and then she was also one of the first to speak out and reveal what Harvey Weinstein was doing. So that that's a very interesting point. It brings it full round. And also, gosh, Rose McGowan, wow. I just realized that and that puts her in both places. I didn't make that connection either when we spoke about her Mm -hmm. earlier. So that's a good point. All right, back to Daniela. So where is she now? She's doing a lot. She will be graduating from the Harvard Extension School in March of 2023. Again, she will have her master's in organizational psychology. And she is also working on her second book, which she told us a little bit about. And it's going to be titled The Culting of America. This is something I'm definitely looking forward to to reading, and maybe we'll have her back on the show after we read that book, which I'm excited about. Of course. Daniela is a professional consultant, along with being an author, and she can be hired to come out to organizations to discuss the spectrum of cults in the, quote, normal world. So you can look at, you can go to Daniela's website where she posts blogs and she talks more about the work that she is doing. And she's also very active on Twitter and TikTok. So I would definitely say to check her out there. As for me, I'm just looking forward to covering Uncultured and learning even more about Daniela and her story. Yes, I look forward to that book club as well, because although I spoke to Daniela on several occasions, there's still so many questions that I have. And I'm sure our listeners will have many more after they listen to this episode as well. Thank you all so much for listening. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include an interview with Daniela Masayanek-Young, Daniela's book, Uncultured, A Memoir of Cults, War, and Belonging, davidberg.org, and childrenofgod.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.